But let's go ahead and open with a, with a word of prayer before our study. Father and Lord, we just thank you for the, the blessings that we have. And we acknowledge that we have so many blessings, many that we, we seldom take the time to really reflect on, I think. We give you thanks for this local assembly and the different um, people who attend here, their, their love for you and their desire to serve you and to serve Christ. Father, I just um, thank you for the things that we'll see later with with Derek and, and the trip that he made. And Father, we thank you for our country, as troubled as it may be and as much as we may be disapproving of, of much of the things that take place, we're just very thankful that we still have a, a country that we have rights and freedoms. And So Father and Lord, we just pray for our leaders. Pray that they, those that don't recognize the truth that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world and they need one, pray that they would. Father, we pray for this study and the services to follow. It's our hope and it's our desire to glorify our Savior. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 5. Uh, we left off, we finished verse 19, and so just a, a little bit of a, of a review of what we, we've studied so far in, in chapter 5 is uh, last week, if you weren't with us, we saw that by one man came death. I guess everybody knows whose name that is, right? Adam, right? Um, by one man came death, and by one man came life, and I should put you all the test. Do you know who that one is? So, and I know you do. And that is Jesus. Um, Adam was obviously the first Adam. Jesus was the last Adam. And we also saw that according to verse 14, Romans 5.14, let's read it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So we spent time talking about the fact that Adam was a figure of Christ, Christ that would have to come. Uh, We didn't catch God off off guard. Um, Adam didn't surprise God with what he did. And God um, had this plan of salvation from the very get-go. It is the perfect plan of salvation. It is the only plan of salvation that would truly work. And that plan of salvation was even though man is going to sin, I'm still going to make man and I'm going to provide the way for him to be redeemed. Now that doesn't get you choked up. We looked at the identity was the problem. Your problem of dying, we, we think of some of the saddest things we can think of is a little child that's born and three days later dies. The child didn't sin. Uh, that child didn't die because of its sin. That child died because of its identity with Adam. And we had an identity crisis. And you know, we we throw that word out there, but to truly understand the crisis of of, of our situation, uh, because we were in Adam, and there was absolutely nothing that any of us could do, even if. Someone could live perfectly. They were still condemned to death because of their identification with Adam. And the only way to fix that problem is if somebody came who wasn't subject to that. 
And so we had to be identified with Christ. And, and as we're going to see through chapter 5 and even into chapter 6, Paul's going to continue discussing identification as he gets into the um, baptism even. And so the problem was our identification being in Adam. And it, it wasn't because of what you've, you've done. Um, it's because of who you came from. Uh, there's nothing, nothing that we could do about it. Uh, like I said, if, if you've ever spent time thinking about why is it that God made a multitude of angels, but he made one man? Why is it that man can be redeemed, but angels cannot? Um, that's because that, that angel, he, he, he doesn't take on the nature of other angels that sin. When he sins, that was him. You were in Adam, and God devised that plan for a reason. We talked about the fact that so many people say, well, that's not fair that I'm going to die. It's not fair that this happens to, to people because of what Adam did. But we talked about what was the alternative. Do you want to earn your own righteousness? Do you think you really, really would have chosen and you would have lived up to live righteously? No. So God, in his infinite wisdom, whenever he says, my ways are not your ways. He says, my ways are above your ways. By the fact that it was by one man, Adam, it could become by one man, Christ. And people um, don't recognize that. They don't recognize the fact that that was an act of mercy on God's part to do it that way. Not an act of unfairness. We talked about how many times in that past, those, that section, verses 12 through 19, we see certain words. Um, we talked about one of those, that phrase, much more, and how important that is to those verses. Christ doesn't just come and zero out your debt, does he? He doesn't come and just say, you know what, you owe, you owe $50,000 and here comes the lender and says, I'll pay the $50,000. No, Christ comes and he does much more. The grace much more abounds. He doesn't just zero out your debt. He actually, he cancels that debt. He pays for that debt and then he imputes his righteousness on you. So it's not just a, you got a clean slate. Because where would that leave us? Okay, tomorrow I'll end up needing him to die again. And see, wow, when you start thinking, this is why I love Romans 5. Because when, this is what all of these verses are telling us. And so um, we see that uh, um, this is a better way, what God has done. One of the challenges, I think, that um, as Christians is how do we explain, um, whether it's to, you know, if you want to use that term, baby Christian, um, but especially to those who aren't saved, those who don't understand um, the love of Christ, the love of God, how do we get them to understand what hopefully, I'm hoping you guys to to see here about Romans chapter 5, that, that God did all of this because of his love, because he's a loving God, he's a gracious God. He's not this, this meaning that the world sees him as. That's one of the challenges that you have, that I have, is trying to express that to the world, that how much love there is towards you in who Christ Jesus is. And so that's one of the things that we have to... Um, we have to... Spend our time 
contemplating um, on how to do that. And so chapters 5 and 6 really is a lesson on many different things, um, but really it's a basic lesson on identification. So if you were going to summarize chapters 5 and 6 both, which um, um, if I actually get on to the verses here, um, we get into chapter 6, you'll see that um, chapter 6 deals also with identification as well. So any questions on any of that or comments on any of that? Okay, so let's get into our verse. Verse 20 here, Romans chapter 5. Let's just read verses 20 and 21. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, understand this, and um, hopefully I can do an adequate job of explaining this. That these verses are talking about a dispensational change that took place. It's talking about a change that took place from when, when um, uh, you had uh, death reign into a description of grace reigning. Right now, grace reigns. People, again, they don't seem to understand, even though death still exists, right now, grace reigns, not the law. Um, grace reigns because God is in, is in the business of offering grace. He's not in the business of offering judgment. And that's to the whole world. We think that it's only to us who are saved. Oh, but that non-believer who's doing all these horrible things, whew, better be careful. God might send a tornado after you. Or God might send a tsunami after you. No, no. God's not in the business of doing that today. To anyone right now, he's got that. He's got that offer. He literally did. Christ did die to reconcile the whole world. Now, guess what? This day of grace will end. There's going to be that day of judgment that's promised. But right now, God is just offering grace. Yes. Um, no, what, what I was referring to whenever I said the offer, it's the offer of salvation. Right now, what he has is he's got a peace offer on the table. Um, and that peace offer is to the whole world. And so whether the individual decides to take God up on that offer is up to them. But between now and the day that they die or the day that the Lord returns, there is no judgment that's going on. In the, to the world by God. God is not in the business of judging the world right now. And so right now, that's an open invitation to anybody that they can accept that offer of peace. But the thing is, is guess what happens if you don't offer, if you don't accept an offer of peace, what state are you in? By your own position, not by God. God's position isn't one that you're my enemy. It's your position if you reject the peace officer. You're, you're the one who's declared him your enemy. Did you... 
think in, in addition to that, people still receive the benefits of their sin in this life or, or how you, the, the results or the consequences. Yeah, because that's, that's not an act of judgment. Own, that's right. That's yeah. their own yeah. laws. Yeah. yeah, whenever you do something dumb or ill-advised that is also a sin, um, you should also expect that bad things are going to happen. You know, it's kind of like Mr. Pac-Man. You remember that video game? You know, as you go around, if you, you keep up eating up the and doing the bad things, guess what? Don't, don't blame that on God's judgment. Blame that on, well, you did something that wasn't very smart. And so um, right now, there is no judgment by God. Um, and it's an, it's an offer that's open to everybody. And so, again, so what we're seeing here, which we'll talk about more here, is a dispensational distinction that he's talking about here. He's introducing this situation. Uh, go ahead. the verse that says he's not including our sins today? Yeah, Romans chapter 4, I believe. So, But turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse uh, 56 and 57 talks about the sting of death and the strength of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56 says, The sting of death is sin. And again, just a reminder, we all die as humans because of being in Adam. And so the sting of death... uh, you, you can't really blame it on Adam because guess what? Each, of us, each one of us followed up that sin that we have through Adam with our own sins. So can't really blame him for it. To, but, but the fact is the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is in the law. And that's really what, what Paul is, is trying to um, bring about here back in Romans chapter 5 uh, regarding what the law is, what the law does, what the law is not. So many people are confused about what the law is. The law has a righteous way to use it and an unrighteous way to use it. An unrighteous way to use it would be try to place somebody who's not under the law, place them under the law, which is why it's so wrong whenever you have pastors uh, in churches who want to try and put you under the law today who are not under the law. That is a big, big problem, which is why we think teaching, you know, we, you know some of us might, well, tithing's not that big of a deal. Water baptism is not that big of a deal. Look, it's not the big deal in the water baptism or the tithing. The big deal is that with those things, when you get in the law, the law is a curse. And so you need to understand so that you're truly edified and so you truly understand that you're not under the law. You've been made free from the law. You've been taken out of the bondage of law, which is why Paul reminds the Galatians, why do you want to be subject to this? And so, as we're going to see here, the the law has uh, um, a righteous way to be used and an unrighteous way to to be used. So, what we can see here is where it talks about this law back in Romans chapter 5 here, the law entered, which tells you there was a time that the law wasn't there, right? Talking about the Mosaic law, it actually entered, which already speaks of a progressive revelation or a dispensational process. Don't think of dispensations as time periods, as, but think of them like administrations. And, and I, I've told this, and I'm sure you may have heard it from other, other people as well. 
Uh, right now in this country, uh, we are under the Biden administration. Before that, it was the Trump administration. Well, guess what? As these verses talk about, right now you're under the grace administration. But there was a time when it was the law administration. And then as we see sin or the law entered, we see that um, that that there was a time that the law wasn't the administration. So when you when you begin to pay attention to these, you see what's really being said here. There was a time before the law, there was the law, and a time after. So understand that Paul here is 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 discussing dispensational things. Things that you need to rightly divide and understand that God has got a, a way in which he's administered um, with mankind, the way he's dealt with mankind. And so here you got the law um, was added. But just because the law was added, as, as we already saw in, in preceding verses, sin existed before the law ever came into being. The law um, made it more pronounced in multiple ways. One, people um, who saw that they were sinful became more sinful. But it also um, was really the righteous way to use the law was the way it was intended was so that somebody would recognize that they were sinful. Why Paul talks about the fact that it was a schoolmaster to take us to Christ. It was meant to show, and if you really think about it, if you go back to, to when the law was added, and this isn't even in my notes here, I wasn't going to talk about it, so I'll try not to spend too much time on it. The right response, um, and, and I say that carefully, I want to say that gently and carefully. Um, I guess I should say the wise response to is, for Israel, um, whenever God says, well, here's my law, if you fulfill it, then I'll do these things. What, what should have been their response? No. Their response should have been, we can't be righteous. We can't be perfect. Huh? No, I think that they did know that. I think that what, what you saw throughout the wilderness is whenever they went from one place, as, as God is leading them with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, and within one week they're sitting there, they're sinning over and over and over again. Um, I think part of that process there was to reveal to them that you can't be this way. Now, I'm not saying that anybody would have rejected that offer. I'm just saying that that a true, if, if God came to you right now, let me use my wife as an example. God says, if you're perfect, I'll be your God. You want that deal? You see what I'm saying? You know, but we do know things now that maybe they didn't comprehend at that point. But ultimately, the law wasn't for them to be, hey, look at me, I'm righteous. Or even, hey, look at me, I'm an Israelite. God is my God. The law was meant to show them, wait a minute, that's righteous? That's what righteousness looks like? I see what I look like, and that's not the same thing. That's what the law was meant to be for. It was to show man his sin, to show him that he was not Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Galatians three nineteen, And you can read probably verses 16 through 24 as it relates to, to this, and it's pretty informative, but I'll take you just um, a verse. Galatians three nineteen says, um, here we go, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, 
till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of one mediator. Um, the law was added uh, because transgression already exists. It was there to make it obvious to the world. It was there to, to make it known. Paul even talks about that. He said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even known that whenever I um, you know, coveted something that I was violating the law of lust if it wasn't for the law. He said, the law is what showed me that. And so understand that's really what the law um, is, is, was for. But that doesn't mean that the law is unjust. It doesn't mean the law is bad. Turn to Romans 7. Romans 7, 12. Here Paul confirms the fact that even though, even though the law was there to show man how unrighteous he is, the law itself is still good. It's still holy. Romans 7.12 says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. So what does that mean? It means the fact that, that, that the law itself wasn't given in an unjust situation. It wasn't bad for God to give this law. The, the fact of the matter is, is it's good. It reveals to you what is good. The problem isn't the law. The problem is what? Us. Mankind, and that's really what the law is meant to show: is uh, man, this is what good looks like. How are you going to be good? And so that means you're dependent upon God. On God. So, um, again, the law was not uh, was not meant to, and it does not make a person righteous. It is meant to point. Um, uh, people to the one that is righteous. The law is not, and it cannot. Think of this: how can how can the law make someone clean that is already unclean? It can't. Now, what God does, God did through the law. He gave the offering of sacrifices, but that offering of sacrifices was was built into the law because of the provision that Christ was going to come. The law itself without Christ coming couldn't have made somebody clean, could it? The only reason that they could be clean is because, just as we saw here in um, verse 14, is because Adam was a type of the one that would come later. And so hopefully that makes sense to you, is, is the law couldn't make somebody clean. It was within the law, the sacrificial system, that was part of that which allowed people to receive um, an atonement until the, the ultimate atonement was, was, was come. So I hope, hopefully that makes, makes sense to you. And so 1 Timothy 1, Paul talks about this using the law the right way. 1 Timothy 1, look at uh, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Now, don't read on, and I know you probably already did. How do you use it lawfully? After everything I just said, how do you use the law lawfully? We can't, but I mean, there, there's a lawful way to use it. You can actually, you, you can use it today. Uh, I know that uh, 
um, there's some ministries out there that do a really good job evangelizing. The law you can use even today to show somebody they're a sinner, can't you? You can show somebody that they're a sinner by, have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever done this? Well, guess what? That's what righteousness looks like. And if you're not righteous, God says that you're condemned. You condemned yourself. So to use the law lawfully is to show somebody that they're guilty, not to try to justify people. You don't use the law to justify us, especially putting us under the law who are already, guess what? If you're a believer, you've already been what? Justified. You've already been declared righteous. So why would somebody who's already declared that have to be put under the curse? Yeah. Um, Would it be fair to say also that uh, Jesus took it to the next step of it not only being your actions, but your intent, your heart, and what, uh, like in the Beatitudes, for example, where if you uh, lust, you know, you've already committed adultery in your heart, or hate, or anger, that sort of thing. Yeah, because... um, yeah, uh, we have to understand that there's the, okay, I actually committed murder, and there's the uh, the desire to commit murder. According to Christ and his earthly teachings, um, that desire in itself is a sin, which is one of the reasons why we know that there's absolutely no way that, that you're going to be declared righteous by the law. Um, so... Yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly that aspect of it itself. But the thing that we have to understand, and this is why any time that you think of, uh, of anybody that wants to put you under the law today, they're not really grasping these concepts. They're not really grasping um, you know, the seriousness of what's going on here. If you could be made righteous by the law, you didn't need Christ. And why would Christ come? Therefore, why would I put myself back unto the law which couldn't do that for me? All the law could do is make me guilty. Now that I've been justified, why would I put myself under the curse of the law? See? But let's keep reading here to, to validate what I'm, I'm saying. First Timothy 1, look at verse 9. So if you use the law lawfully, it's good, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. And what did I just ask you? You've been declared what? You are righteous in Christ Jesus. So the law is not made for who? You. It's not made for us. But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, which by the way, what did Romans tell us? Romans told us Christ died for who? The ungodly. It's for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, that is homosexuality, um, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So the law is for the guilty to show them what, well, the fact that they're guilty. That's that's what the law is for. That's what it's meant to be for. And so, which means whenever you list it like that, then um, um, to use the, the law lawfully, um, we, we need to keep in mind that it's for everyone 
that isn't already declared righteous, which we already have been. Tim. Well, the only the only difficulty I have with that explanation by Schofield is is that its Bible is also very clear that before the law came, that that sin on a personal level still existed, which is why Paul talks about the fact that um, without the law, God's going to judge you based on your works, which is what he said in, in the preceding um, verses in Romans. There is, I think it's Romans three or four. I forgot which one it is. So, but by Um, just like we talked about last week when we went over that, is the fact that it's it's not suggesting that apart from the Mosaic law that you couldn't sin. Um, that's not what that's suggesting. Um, the law, the law amplifies and it makes it known. Um, if if the idea was that you couldn't sin apart from the law, the Mosaic law, then why is it that um, God specifically told um, um, what's his name? His son, Adam's son, Cain, that sin lieth at the door. Uh, and he's talking about his personal sin. And so it's, uh, I would disagree with Schofield and I would agree with the many others that would say that, no, that it's not suggesting the idea that sin, there was no sin. Nobody committed a personal sin uh, before the Mosaic law. That would be, that would be um, um, incorrect in my opinion. Yeah, and that's the thing is, I don't know what he's meaning by personal guilt, but um, God said that he was going to judge each man apart from apart from the law. Where there is no law, that law, is, that law itself isn't imputed, but you still had a conscience. You still understood good, right, and wrong. You're still going to be judged for that situation. Well, yeah, and if you remember when we talked about it last week, with the knowledge of, or with the eating of the tree of evil was also eating the knowledge of the tree of what? Good. It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God gave man a conscience. And so he knew right from wrong. He knew, Cain knew it was wrong to kill his brother. Um, God isn't, um, God's hand's not tied that he couldn't apply that to, to Cain's charge. So. But again, um, I would suggest if anybody has more questions, listen to last week's um, because we went over that uh, quite a bit. So um, moving on here. So where it says here back in Romans 5 that um, uh, 
But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's where I'm talking about this dispensational aspect of it. Um, um, When you think of the... um, What was the world like immediately prior to Acts chapter 9, prior to Saul being saved? Well, let's think of what's transpired. Um, Mankind has already rebelled against God in the form of Adam. Um, God has, um, you know, brought in prophets. He's he's instituted especially, he sat the Gentiles aside and started working specifically through um, one people, this nation of Israel. They were his people. The nation of Israel continued over and over again to reject and to kill his prophets. And then they even dare kill his son. And then you have this offer that is given to Israel of this kingdom. And with the stoning of Stephen, you see the ultimate um, decision to reject God even further. Then you have this guy by the name of Saul who's leading this rebellion against God. So when you when you when you be, when you really begin to paint the picture in your line, in your mind, what is the world look like prior to Acts chapter nine? Well, it's a world that has. Whenever you think of the parables that Jesus talk about, when he talks about the the the, the guy who sends his son and they and he sends his servants and they kill the servants and then he sends his son saying, surely they won't they won't he won't kill my they won't kill my son and then they do the same thing to him, and he. Jesus asks them, what do you suppose is going to happen to those people? And they said, and they, they basically judged themselves guilty by what they said. They basically said, well, he's going, to, he's going to destroy them and he's going to start with somebody new. And he says, mm-hmm. Well, but instead of doing that, we see something take place. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. When the world was at its feverish pitch of rejecting God, did God throw down the hammer? No. Turn me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. So when you think of that verse where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, I would suggest you think of it in this terms. Look at Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 3. As for Saul, he made what? What does your Bible say? Havoc. Havoc. He he made a havoc of the church there, that early uh, Pentecostal church there. Entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Paul himself later in Galatians 1 and other places talks more detail about the extreme extreme situation of his actions, causing people to blaspheme, guilty of murdering these people. Knowing that they would be put to death, he sends them to prison. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, they had rejected the testimony of Stephen full of the Holy Ghost. God had, again, tried to save mankind. He's, he's, he's created this special nation. He sent prophets. He sends his son. They murder his son. He's, he says to them, even after they've murdered his son, he says that all you got to do is these things and believe, and I'm going to send this king, kingdom, and they don't do it. So in Acts chapter 3, you have basically the whole world 
in rebellion against God. Now look at Acts chapter 9, verse 21. Acts 9, 21. And we know who it's talking about because verse 19 says it's Saul. Um, But verse 21 says, But all that heard him, meaning Saul, were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. So, the question you, you should ask yourself, what happened between Acts chapter 8 verse 3 and Acts chapter 9 verse 21? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That's what happened. Whenever God could have, not that he wasn't already justified, when God could have said, you know what? I'm done. Grace did much more abound. Alex. So very quickly, you said Acts chapter 3, verses 1? Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Oh, 8. Mm-hmm. What was the verse in Acts chapter 3? Acts read? chapter 9. I didn't use chapter 3. Oh. Yeah, you eight, probably heard 8, 3. Yeah. 8, 3. Yep. And then 9, 21. And so whenever he talks about this where, where sin abounded because... You know, the law had, had really emphasized and showed the extremity of man's sin. Now with that law, they could see the total depravity that they themselves were. And then, whenever things got so bad, grace abounded. Grace reigns today. That same, that same grace that fell down instead of judgment, that's why I'm saying that when it says the grace reigns, that's what's reigning today, is God's grace. And so Paul, um, well, just read verse 21. It says, That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So um, whenever you think of what this truly means, when you understand what these, what Romans 5 and 6 is talking about, and then you hear preachers preach things that are like lordship salvation or the idea that you can lose your salvation, that preaching is um, defies what this is teaching. This teaches the idea of identification, uh, that the fact that, you know, regardless of what I do from this point forward, even though I, I, I should do these things, and grace doesn't mean that, I, that uh, I've got a license to go sin. If you do that, then that means you don't understand this. But, but understanding that because grace reigns through righteousness, and as Paul talked about in the earlier portions of chapter 5, that your righteousness is in your identification of Jesus Christ, not in your actions. That's where your righteousness lies, is in your identification to Jesus. Why? Because you were stuck in an identification problem with Adam. Could you get out of that by your works? No. Why would you be able to get get out of your identification of Jesus by works? See what I'm saying? Hopefully that makes sense. And so really this last verse, verse 21, is meant to um, summarize salvation um, and, um, and how that is really the doctrine also of, of identification. And Paul in chapter 6 is going to go into identification even further, um, specifically as how baptism relates to identification.
And uh, we won't have a time to get into baptism, but let's go ahead and jump into verses uh, 1 and 2 here of chapter 6. Any comments or questions on any of that, though? Okay. He says, what shall we say then? Um, which obviously, um, again, it's why we tell, uh, we tell you that, you know, just because you have a chapter break doesn't mean that it's like a new topic that's moved on. So make sure you keep that in mind. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Um, Paul here, and if you, if you like uh, outlines, um, if you like to have nice, neat little outlines of, uh, of, of how the scriptures are um, put together, um, Paul here foresees three, and I say Paul, but it's really obviously the Holy Spirit who inspired this, uh, three different questions or objections to Paul's teaching on justification. So in other words, when he teaches justification not by works, but by faith, he, or the scriptures, foresee three common objections to that. And that's what he addresses between here, the beginning of chapter 6, and the end of chapter 7, is going to be those three objections. And so verses 1 through 14, he's, he's dealing with, if God's grace abounds when we sin, should we continue in sin so that we might experience more grace? Now, hopefully, you have the discernment to realize, well, that's a pretty absurd question. <laughs> but it's not so absurd because the fact that the Holy Spirit saw fit to deal with that. And it wouldn't be surprising. Matter of fact, we know for certain, if you go back to Romans, I think it's chapter 3, isn't it, where Paul deals with that issue there. because, And he alludes to the fact that some are already saying that. Some are already suggesting, whoa, if God is glorified by giving me grace, then you mean the more I sin, which means the more grace he gives me, means the more he's glorified? That's literally what some of the people were taking from Paul's message. And so verses uh, 1 through 14, Paul is going to deal with that issue. Verses 15 through chapter 7, verse 6, um, he's going to deal with the issue, if you're no longer under the law, then we're free to live as we please. And Paul's going to address that issue verse, through verse 6 of chapter 7. And in the rest of chapter 7, he's going to deal with... Um, um, you have basically um, this accusa- accusation that Paul is making God's law in itself sin. And that's whenever that verse that we read earlier, that the law is holy, the law is just, came from the end of chapter 7. So those are the three things that Paul, between chapter 6 and chapter the end of chapter 7, are going to deal with. And one of the ways he's going to be doing that is talking about baptism, which next week we'll spend um, quite a bit of time looking at uh, baptism, what it truly means and how it affects us. But this issue here, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Second Corinthians 5, starting verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 
and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This is where more than once, I, I think it's three times, I know it's at least twice, I'm thinking it's three times, where Paul specifically uses the phrase, you've been bought with a price. Bought, purchased, you don't belong to yourself. Getting Christians, one of the difficulties, and I'm sure that um, those before me um, could have said the same thing about me, one of the difficulties is getting Christians to understand that being saved um, didn't make it so that you could spend the rest of your life dis- deciding how you want to live your life. It's not about you know, you know, you know, retirement and you know, vacations and all that. And I'm not saying that those things are bad in themselves. But as a Christian, we need to comprehend that we've been bought with a price, and we've been bought to do things, to do certain things. It's our reasonable service to do these things. And in verse 15, and he, that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth live un, uh, not unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, and you know what that means? Because, again, we've talked about um, him being in a, a lawyer, basically. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God. Um, and so, if you are a new creature, how can the thing that died continue in the things that we're for the dead. You're a new creature, which means you're to do the new things. That's the new things that you're supposed to be doing. Paul talks about this kind of concept all over the place. Um, but we need to understand that ultimately what Paul is teaching is, is that grace that reigns, it teaches you something. It's not just a matter of, I'm off the hook. It's meant to tell us something more. Just like the law was supposed to teach the people that they needed the needed Christ. Your grace, my grace, is meant to teach each one of us something. What do you think that might be? Turn to Titus. Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, this world that Paul else places calls this present evil world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, grace teaches us that, one, you're a new creature, that you should walk in the newness of life, that you should walk in the Spirit, that you should no longer walk in the ways where he talks about the fact that you were once this thing. Now you're this new thing. 
So Paul here in his argument with, with those who would argue that, well, Paul, your idea of justification by faith, it just teaches somebody that they can go and, and have that easy believism and I can still just continue in sin. And he says, no, it actually teaches something the law itself couldn't bring you to. So that's what he's talking about here. Our new, new identity. I know, we're running late. You're going to have to give me grace. Go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, look verse 1. And you, talking to the believers, talking to the saints, and you hath he quickened, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Drop down to verse 10. So he talks then after that about the salvation and all that. Then he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that you, being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So we understand that this grace that's been applied to us is meant to also um, teach us the fact that we should not walk after that old man, but under the new man. Because by virtue of you, that what comes with that identification and, and you being in that new man is the need for you to follow after that new man, is what he's talking about. Um, any questions or comments? All right, so next week, again, we'll pick up in verse 3, and, and, and we're going to spend some time talking about baptism. So if you've got questions on um, baptism, and when I say baptism, water baptism is, is, is one of many. And so, but Paul brings up baptism, um, and so we'll talk about how that is identification as well. So, okay.